We're going to be wrapping up uh, this morning a the series that we've been moving through as a, as we wonder together about why does church even matter, right? It's 2023. Uh, what is this thing that's happening? I can maybe see why maybe it was beneficial historically as we think of things, right? When a world was just in chaotic states and if you were, you know, like struggling in the world, like the institution that was in your community, the only one, there was no such thing as hospitals or or ways in which the rest of the community would come out and support you. The church was there, and that was good. But what about now? Why does the church still matter today? And we're wrapping that series up, and we're going to look at the fourth of the partnership commitments that we've been walking through. And then next week, Jordan's going to bring it all together. Um, and so we're just going to highlight the last one about partnering with God on mission. So that's our our focus for today is to think about what does it look like as we try to answer this question of why does church matter? And it turns out it needs to matter first here, right? <laughs> to me, uh, if it's going to matter to a broken world. And so we'll, we'll investigate that a little bit together. Hey, um, as we begin our time together, would you pray with me, please? Father, may your word be our guide your spirit, our only teacher, in the glory of Jesus Christ, our single concern, in whose name we pray. Amen. Listen then to the word of the Lord from the book that we love. Now Moses was tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro was, by the way, the priest of Midian. And so Moses had taken his flock far out into the desert, all the way to Horab, the mountain of the Lord. And while he was there, he looked and he saw a, a, a bush. And it was, it was on fire as an angel of the Lord had come and inhabited that bush. But it was not consumed. And so when Moses saw it, he said, this is a strange sight. I shall go and investigate why this bush is on fire, but it is not consumed. And as the Lord was watching, he saw Moses approaching the bush and he called out to Moses from within the bush. And he just said, Moses, Moses, here am I, Moses said. Moses, take off your sandals because the place in which you are standing is holy ground. For at that then Moses took off his sandals and as he approached and the Lord spoke to him again and said, Moses, I have indeed seen the suffering of my people under the boot of the Egyptians and I am greatly concerned. So I have come down to rescue them and I will take them up and out of the land of the Egyptians and bring them into a great and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is currently inhabited by the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I will give them this land for them to inhabit because of their great suffering under the Egyptians. So Moses said, who am I that I should be the one that you are speaking to? And says, Moses, I need you to go. But why? Why should I be the one that goes? 
I will be with you, the Lord said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's look at maybe why, again, if we're going to ask the question, why does church matter? We're turning to, you know, the second book of this entire corpus of books and wondering why does church matter, but how maybe God is rooted in a story long before the church even comes to be, and yet we continue to live into that story. So let's go back a little bit and let's connect back to the the previous very long series that we went through as we went through the book of Genesis. Uh, because we're, we're connected to that story too. As the book of Exodus opens, so we've turned the page from the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we've now started the second big story of what God is going to do. And as we turn the page, a lot of time has, has progressed. It was all the way, way back in Genesis chapter 17, when God was making promises to a fellow named Abram, who will be called Abraham. Um, you can go back in the archives uh, of messages, I'm sure, and watch more about that. But he comes to him and he says, I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the heaven and sand on the seashore. And they will be a whole nation. But there will be a time, God says, already back in Genesis 17, God says there'll be a time that they will be slaves in a land not their own, but I will always be with them. And for 400 years, they will be subject to this slavery. And sure enough, as we've turned the page to start the book of Exodus, that's what's been happening. God's people have been enslaved in the land of Egypt. And it is there that as that group has grown now to a much larger population from a family that moved down to Egypt. If we remember at the end of the book of Genesis, that family, which was Abraham, he had a kid, a couple kids. One was named Isaac. We were going to follow his story. He had a couple kids. We followed Jacob. In the story, Jacob had 12. One of them had a very nice coat. You can watch the musical. Um, I won't sing it for you, though I'm tempted. Moving on, I don't have time for this. And so it's there that they, because of the brother with a very nice coat, Joseph is his name, that that whole family moves down to Egypt. Because Joseph's been living down there, making plans to keep you know the world alive through storing up a bunch of food for everybody. And so the family moves down, and they settle down there in Goshen, down in Egypt. But on, this is how now that family has grown to a whole nation. And in great concern, the king of Egypt, known as Pharaoh, is worried about that population. He's like, these people are getting, there's too many of them. And I'm worried that because of the like scale of this group of people, that they're going to try to overcome and fight back. Because turns out, Pharaoh knows that he's kind of a terrible fella and is like subjugating a whole people group. And he's worried that that subjugating group is going to rise up against them. He has good cause for his concern. And so anyway, he says, we got to put a pause on this group of people growing in population. And so every baby boy that is born to this Hebrew group is what they're called now. We got to kill every baby boy. So he creates like a system where every Egyptian midwife is supposed to come to the aid of a Hebrew woman giving birth, but then if it's a boy that comes out, he's supposed those midwives are supposed to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. 
But there's these two, like, oh, you guys, we'll, we'll get to the story. We'll, we'll start yeah, this, uh, like, uh, uh, Exodus study later in the year. But there's these two Egyptian ladies that are like, no, we're not going to do that. That's terrible. Their name are Shifra and Pua. And Shifra and Pua are these two Egyptian midwives. And they go out, and they're, they're, these babies are born, baby boys, and they don't kill them. And Pharaoh's like, ah, what's wrong? And they're like, yeah. It's crazy. These Hebrew women are just like spitting out babies. We can't get there in time. Which is a lie. Like they just lied to Pharaoh straight out. And apparently God's fine with that. I don't know. We'll let Jordan wrestle with that when he gets to that. In uh, When we study uh, the book of Exodus. Anyway, Pharaoh's like, ah, this is terrible. So then he has a new plan. He's like, fine. We're going to throw all of these babies into the Nile. Even if at the moment of their birth we can't kill them, we'll find all the baby boys and we'll throw them into the Nile so they die. Like that's how chapter 1 of Exodus ends. And we're like, oh, this is not going well. The deceit of Pharaoh did not take place in the way that we were hoping it would. And so there's we, oh, the chapter 2 opens up and there's a more courageous woman in the story. This time it is a Hebrew woman who gives birth to a baby boy. And she nurses him for three months. For three months she, she hides this baby so none of the Egyptians can see him and throw him in the Nile. And yet it becomes a point when he gets too old and she cannot hide him any longer. And so she makes a difficult and sacrificial choice. And so she takes this baby of hers and she fashions a, a vessel, like a, a, little, a little lifeboat. To put him in. Um, the Hebrew word is teva. Say teva. I, I, I think we've talked about this word before because we've, we've heard it one other time in our story thus far. And it's all the way back in, in chapter 6 of Genesis. Uh, God it looks down at everything that's happening. And he's like, this has gotten really, really bad. He says, every inclination of the heart of humanity is evil all the time. So I need to like reset things. I loved I loved the line and I'm I'm going to sing I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to read. Uh in this last song, oh, I'm not going to move your papers. But I'm going to move your papers, but they're still good. They're good. Um Oh, the last song, Lord send revival. Open the heavens, fling wide the gates, flood every heart with mercy. Pour your presence, inhabit our praise as we cry holy, holy holy. It's in this moment that as God looks down in Genesis chapter 6, he's like, it's all really bad, so I'm going to flood not with my mercy, but with water, with chaos. And in the midst of that, I am going to cleanse, like a baptism almost uh, in the story. I'm going to cleanse all of the earth, and we're going to start over. But you know what? I'm not going to get rid of everything. I'm going to gather like a little, uh, a little garden, a little Eden land, heaven, a little heaven, because heaven is supposed to be here, right? Heaven is code word for God's kingdom manifest on planet earth. It is somewhere we go when we die, uh, but it's also supposed to be on earth, right? Right now, God's kingdom. And so God says, I want, I want this flourishing this relationship with my humanity, with all of creation to be manifest again. But the problem is people are messing it up all the time. And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that. 
I'm going to flood everything. So I'll put a, a family, a fellow named Noah and his wife and a few of his kids and their wives. I'm going to put them in this little floating Eden garden land with a bunch of animals. Um, and, and we'll save creation that way. Our Bibles translate it, that, that little floating Eden garden land, uh, as the word ark. But it's the same word, teva. It's the only time that this word shows up in the whole Hebrew Scriptures. We have the teva the, in Genesis 6, which will save, rescue, you know, this plan of God to be in right relationship with his creation. Uh, that, that one doesn't work, if you remember, because um, things go sideways again. And then now, all of a sudden here, in chapter 2 of Exodus, same word. Right? Same word. Actually, it's interesting because even in the description of it, in, oh, by the way, we're in Exodus. If you have a Bible with you, this is, uh, this is a good transition, uh, clutch and uh, shift. Um, Exodus, we're in Exodus 2 now, by the way. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, then we have some uh, in the front here. Uh, feel free to take one of those studies Bibles with you. Uh, but anyway, we're on page, or uh, on book 2 of the story. And if you have one of these Bibles in the, uh, from here, we're starting. Awkward transitions are what teachers are the best at. Um, so this is just normal. Uh, we're, we're on page 103. Right? 103. Um, so anyway, like the, the description is almost exactly the same too. In chapter 2, It says, but when she, that's uh, Moses' mother, could not hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket. Again, that's the word teva, ark, apparently translated once, and basket translated a different time, for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Oh, that's exactly the same description of the teva in Moses, or sorry, in, in Noah's story. He covers it with tar and pitch. Like, as readers, we're supposed to be like, oh, I know what's going to happen. God's going to rescue. Because that's what he did, right? The plan was in chapter 6 of Genesis, when everything was really bad, God says, I'm going to come and rescue this plan, and we're going to fix it. And then it didn't. right? And then now he, his people are trying to be eliminated from the planet by this Pharaoh. And God says, I am going to rescue. And now, like, they put a baby in it. That seems like an interesting plan. Uh, but that's what happens. And then that, that little rescue boat is put among the reeds in the Nile. Not in the water where he will die, but instead among the reeds in this little rescue boat. And there, his sister, Moses' sister, just watches, as instructed by mom, just watch what happens. And sure enough, uh, some people come along to the Nile. It's actually Pharaoh's daughter and a bunch of her attendants. She's coming to bathe in the Nile. And she goes in and she's like, what's that over there? Somebody go get that for me. Because she can just tell people what to do. And so someone goes and gets this basket, right? This little rescue vessel, this little ark. And it's like, there's a baby inside. And they're like, this is crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And, and so then the, the, the sister shows up and is like, you, it's a, you want me to find you somebody to help take care of that baby? Because the Pharaoh's daughter realized like, this is a Hebrew baby. And so the sister says, I can find you someone to nurse that baby. She goes home and gets her mom, Moses' mom. Uh, and Moses' mom nurses Moses to be a boy. But he grows up. This baby, who now is given a name, 
It's finally, he's given the name by Pharaoh's daughter. And he says, I will call him Moshe, which simply means to draw out, because he was drawn out of the water. And so he, she draws him out and says, you're going to come be my son. So now this Hebrew baby boy is the adopted grandson of Pharaoh himself. Even though Pharaoh has been trying to kill all the Hebrew boys, now it's in his own family. Right? This is an interesting turn of events in the story. He grows up. Like all of a sudden in chapter 2, we fast forward in Moses' life, and he's like a grown man. Uh, which is we're going to see that first 40 years of the life of Moses. And he's now walking around and he's watching all of his own people being just like treated terribly by these Egyptian slave, slave drivers. And he's seeing him and he sees an Egyptian uh, beating a Hebrew. And he's just filled with this like righteous indignation and he attacks the Egyptian and he actually kills him. Right? We see how God is planning a rescue of his people, but Moses, instead of being a rescuer, suddenly takes the way of another story we saw early on in the story of Cain and Abel, and suddenly he takes the way of Cain and he commits murder. There's a lot of literary connections as he looks to the left and the right, and he sees it, and he buries the man's body in the earth, and his blood soaks into the ground like Abel's did. He's then, a few days later, walking around again. He sees two Hebrews fighting. And he's like, why are you all fighting with each other? To which they say to Moses, what? You're going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? In this, Moses is terrified because he's heard that now word has gotten out of what he has done. And he goes on the run. This kid, this boy, this now man who has grown up in the court of Pharaoh, having the best teachers, having the best opportunities of his whole life, runs. Because Pharaoh wants to kill him now. And he goes here. This is how chapter 3 starts. The part we just heard from. He's out there shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. The priest of Midian. We don't know anything about him. um, Other than the fact that he's out here in Midian. And he's being a shepherd for his father-in-law. And Moses is out here. And suddenly he sees this interesting sight. And God comes to him and says, I need you to go to Pharaoh. And for the next chapter and a half, Moses is going to try to convince God, unsuccessfully, mind you, is going to try to convince God that he should pick somebody else. He says, whoa, whoa, what what, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to say? And he's like, don't worry, Moses. I will be with you. I know, but you got to be kidding me. He says, okay, go to the Go to the elders of Israel and just tell the elders of Israel that you all should go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people come out into the desert and worship me for three days. Just do that. And Moses is like, yeah, I don't know if I even want to say that. And he's like, oi. And so then, that's, that's God, by the way. I think he says that regularly to me. Anyway, and he comes in and he says, and Moses finally says, God, you just, you got to pick somebody else. I'm not good at this, like, public speaking, speaking to power and authority and telling them that they're wrong. You know, like, nobody likes that. And so he says, pick someone else. And at one point, near the, almost near the middle of chapter 4, it says, And God's anger burned against Moses. P.S. You don't want that. 
Right? Nobody, nobody wants, like, if I don't want to go speak against power and authority, I really don't want God's anger to burn against me. But because Moses kept trying to convince God, like, send somebody else. And God keeps saying, no, it's you. Go, 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 go. I need you to go. Yeah, but what am I supposed to tell them? Who sent me? Tell them, I sent you. What's your name? I am, Moses. I am. Finally, he lets Aaron go with him because Moses is so... So against the idea of going to talk to Pharaoh and to the elders of Israel, he lets Aaron go with him. But God continually says to Moses, get up from where you are. I know you're on the run. I know you're scared. But don't forget who you are, Moses. You are a Hebrew. And a Hebrew who in my grand plan I put in the very court of Pharaoh. There is no one, no other Hebrew on the planet at this time that even knows the the layout of the palace of Pharaoh except you. There is no one that knows how to speak Egyptian as well as you do than you, Moses. There is nobody that knows the whole family more than you except you. You, Moses, are exactly the right person for the job. And for 40 years I've been preparing you for this. You just don't believe it. There's nobody else as well equipped to do this work, to actually go up in front of Pharaoh than Moses himself. God put him in the court of Pharaoh when he was a baby. And Moses doesn't believe it about himself that he's capable of this mission that God has him on. Turns out not much has changed in the last 4,000 years. For generation after generation after Moses, God continues to push his ancient people to live the life that God has prepared them to live because he is with them every single step of the way to be a light to the nations. That's been their job since God called them in in Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. My hope for all of you is to be in a darkened world and bring light. And they kept. Trying, beyond trying and trying and kept failing. And so Moses has to go and set the people free. And sure enough, because Moses went, God set them free. And he's still asking his people to go tell a world that has actually already been set free, but they just don't believe it about themselves. A world in chaos, a world in bondage, a world feeling as though that they are far from God and they cannot come home. Turns out they think that they're enslaved, but turns out they've already been set free. And God just needs his human partners to go and to tell the broken world that they're free. And the problem is I just keep coming up with excuses of why I should not be the one. Jesus will walk along the shores of the Sea of Galilee to a, a, a couple of fishermen and say, hey, come follow me. And they're like, sounds great. And here I am, I'm thinking, yeah, but I still think you probably could send somebody else that's better equipped. I did a chapel the other day at a middle school for my, in my son's grade. He's in sixth grade. And I was terrified. That's a knowing laugh. All of you are terrified of middle schoolers too. Um, 
Like, this is not my world. Right? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think, like, I don't know how to talk to middle schoolers, even though I have one. But I don't, still don't know how to talk. But, right? like, what is God saying? Like, no, no, you're equipped. You're ready. There's a whole, like, group of things hanging on that, on that I don't even know what that's called, a little trellis of sorts. Um, and you're like, you know what? Somebody else is probably better equipped to do, uh, to work with kids. I'm really not that good at that. It turns out you actually are. Just you've convinced yourself that you're not, like Moses did. Some of you are like, you know, I could probably help with worship and tech. You know, like, yeah, I mean, I, I took six years of piano when I was a kid, but I haven't played in years. Great. I bet it'll come back to you. I'm actually uncertain, but you could give it a try. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really play. Um, guess what? You know what? I'm kind of an introvert, but you know what? I bet, I bet it could really help other introverts feel welcome at church. I'm going to sign up for guest services. I don't know what it is. When Jesus met a group of fellows on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, they said, I'm in. And they changed the world. We're here because of it. Because 11 boys took Jesus seriously enough because they believed that all we needed was Jesus to believe in us. The rest will work itself out. God already believes in you. He believes in us. In the same way, God says, I am going to set my people free from slavery in Egypt, but I do need you to go. I mean, he could have done it without Moses, but that's not God's plan. God's plan is to continue to use his human partners, people who say yes to Jesus. And regardless of whether or not I think I'm capable, Jesus believes I already am. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 describes us as a body with many parts, all doing different things. Sure, some of you, to, to do this thing, whatever, uh, talking in front of people with a microphone on your face, would terrify you. And maybe that is not your gift. But something is. And praise be to God, when we all do those pieces, the body starts living in a broken world in the same way that he needed it to work with Moses and through Jesus and still yet today. Turns out not much has changed in the last 4,000 years. It's still the plan that God is hoping to bring heaven, the reality of his kingdom on earth, still today. It's by using us. And turns out he believes in us because he has sent his spirit because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to do this on our own. We are empowered by the spirit of the living God to leave this room today and go to all the places that God has already equipped us. They're called jobs. And to go into those spaces and live as gospel messengers telling a broken world who believes that they're enslaved by the evil one himself and say, you've been set free. Come hang out with Jesus. What a gift. And you already have everything you need to do it. And we get to do it together. Oh, your gifts are different than mine. And yet when we do this, we are actually the physical body of Jesus. Still on planet Earth. He died and resurrected. And then after 40 days, he left again. But his body is still here. And it looks like this. 
So go. I'm sending you, God says. Go. I'll do all the work, but I need you to go. I commit, it says, to partner in God's mission to help people find their way back to God by being generous with my time, talents, and treasures. Same plan that we found at the beginning of Exodus. Same plan that is taking place in Jesus and the way in which he empowers us through his spirit to continue to live on mission, bring hope and light and love and justice to a world that needs it desperately. And he's decided to do it through us. Believe this gospel and live in its peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, in my heart of hearts, I still find it to be a very flawed plan that you've come up with to entrust us to be a people that that go. And yet we trust that you will do all the work. It's always you. But I'm still always so afraid that if I go, something won't work or I'll say the wrong thing or I'll do the wrong thing or I won't do enough. And yet it's not dependent on me. As you've promised, you will do the work. So I pray that you encourage us to go this week. Give us courage and boldness to welcome in the outsider to go and meet the new person, to mend a broken relationship. And as we go into those spaces, do the work that you've promised to do to bring hope and restoration to what is broken. Set your people free still today and help us be the ones who let them see it. We love you and bless you and pray these things in the resurrected name of Jesus our Messiah. Amen.